0: hello welcome to another edition of the new and living way a hebrews podcast i'm ethan and i'm so glad that you've joined us today and thank you for giving us the gift of spending time together as we explore more of what god has to say through the author to the letter of the hebrews we pick up in chapter 4 and in verse 14 since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, we, t- talking about the Hebrews letter, a lot has been said about its structure. And we've been able to discern so far that there's the introduction in the first three verses, four verses of chapter 1, the exordium, where he talks about how God has spoken to the uh, fathers of the prophets, but now speaks in the Son, that is, the heir of all things, whom He created the world, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of his power, that he made purifications for sins, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and has become superior to the angels. And that kind of anchors everything that follows. But we don't have just one clear, flowing narrative that goes straight down a line. Um, and we don't have subjects that are neatly you know, cut up very much like we would find in Paul or in one of the other uh, parts of the uh, New Testament. What we have seems to be kind of a two-track thing, where the Hebrews author has what uh, we're calling, for lack of a better term, a sustained argument, and he has his exhortations. And so, uh, in verses 4 through uh, 14 of chapter 1, the beginning of that sustained argument uh, shows us that Jesus is not just uh, superior to the angels, which is true from all those scriptures that he quotes, but also is indeed God, is uh, eternal, is not changing, You know all these other aspects of his nature. Then in chapter 2, 1 through 4, we've got this exhortation that fits the context in as much as the idea is that we're supposed to uh, not neglect this message because if the law that came from angels uh led to consequences how much more if we neglect the salvation we hear from in the sun but then in verse 5 we noted that you could just kind of get rid of 2 1 through 4 and just go from hebrews one fourteen to 2 5 and it would still make sense it talks about angels uh that that god has not subjected the world to come to them but to the one who is like the son of man from psalm 8 and then in, in the rest of chapter 2 the Hebrews author uh, does a, a wonderful job of, of showing how Jesus had to become fully human and fully partook of, of, of human nature uh, in order to redeem mankind. So, in chapter 1 in the sustained argument, Jesus is God. In chapter 2 of the sustained argument, Jesus is fully man. We then said that beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1 through chapter 4 and verse 13, uh, we have another exhortation. Um, about the household of God, to be part of it, Uh, and then a long explication of Psalm 95, first focusing on they should not be hardened by the seedfulness of sin, having unbelieving heart like that generation in the wilderness did, uh, but should be diligent to enter the rest that God has established for his people, and that the word of God is living and active, and we are exposed and open before God. But again, if you consider the end of chapter 2, and then chapter 4 and verse 14. Uh, Since, uh, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That works. I mean, it sounds maybe a little redundant, but it works. And that again shows that now in chapter 4 and verse 14, he's returned again to the sustained argument um, after doing his exhortation. There's a lot of reasons he might be doing this. Um, It was considered a good form in Greek rhetoric, understanding that it's easy for the audience to get distracted or to lose focus, and so therefore the... Uh, sustained argument piece, the exhortation, the sustained argument piece, exhortation, sustained argument piece, exhortation uh, is a way to kind of keep their interest because you, you're you're constantly moving and therefore giving new things to think about. And it also it's a way to uh, break up the sustained argument with points of exhortation uh, and application to the audience. Uh The Hebrews author is clearly a fan of doing that in interspersed in the argument and not just having full argument and then full um exhortation uh something like you would see perhaps more in the Pauline letters, just showing a different model so it's important to see though that I think the chapter four and verse fourteen and this whole context will continue through chapter five and verse. 10, is now kind of piecing the things together we've seen already. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Jesus is the great high priest. And that's going to be the main focus of the sustained argument as the Hebrews author is going to continue with it. Um, We're going to have an true aside coming up in chapter 5 and verse 11, but as it continues in chapter 7, 8, and 9. And so, He wants to emphasize here that Jesus is the Son of God who has passed through the heavens a great high priest. Because of that, we're to hold fast our confession. The Hebrews author is trying to get his audience to hold fast that confession. What's the confession? Jesus is the Christ, the King, the Son of the living God. We've already uh, seen uh, the premise already about what the confession would be. Uh, Chapter 3 and verse 1, that he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so here again the idea that we are to, that there to hold fast that confession. and How do you hold fast a confession? Well, the recognition that he is the Son of God, that he is the King, that he therefore must be honored and venerated and respected and heeded. And that is the, the core concept going on there. Uh, we're going to get into what it means for him to be a high priest for the rest of this section, so we're going to set that aside for just a second. But it's important to see here that Jesus has passed through the heavens. And that throughout this whole thing, one of the the things that often gets missed in Hebrews, because the Hebrews author isn't as explicit about it, is that some wonder what kind of resurrection theology the Hebrews author has. Uh, And yet, um, we see here that the whole message of the Hebrews author presupposes Jesus' life and Jesus' death, uh, and we'll talk about that in detail, but also his resurrection and his ascension. Uh, that Jesus has passed through the heavens. Um, gone uh, beyond the heavens. In heavens the heavens, the atmosphere, and then you know the galaxies or whatever. Uh, the recognition that he has gone to wherever heaven is. So many times we get wrapped up in heaven as a uh, place out there somewhere. Um, where maybe it's more of a dimensional transition. some A tr- dimension beyond our understanding, beyond us. Um, we don't know. But he has passed to that. And we're, the exhortation here says that the high priest that we have is is not one who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but with every respect has been tempted like we have been but without sinning. And that's led to a lot of speculation, this this verse here. Um, what does it mean uh, that he was uh, tempted yet without sin? Could Jesus have been, actually could have actually sinned? Um, And since he is God and and it is impossible for him to lie and things of that nature. um, On the other hand, if Jesus was truly unable to sin because of his divine nature, uh, that kind of renders the idea that he was perfect to be redundant and drains it of his power. Um, And so one of these things that we probably shouldn't push too hard on because... It's getting into that area of mystery and beyond our understanding. But the force of any temptation is the, rec- the weaknesses. He's, he's gone through the things that we've gone through. He's experienced the things that we've experienced. Um, it's a very powerful, powerful thing. Um, as human beings, we have learned in recent years to really prize head knowledge to a, l- a large extent and to associate knowledge with head knowledge. By head knowledge, it means the kind of facts and things that you can pick up from reading a book or from sitting at the feet of somebody who can provide instruction. And this is not to dismiss the power of that or the value of that, but that head knowledge is, is an intellectual knowledge. But in life, intellectual knowledge only goes so far that there's a much greater power and value in the experiential knowledge. If you've worked in any kind of career or profession, uh, you might well have gone to school for it, or you've gone through training classes, but I would imagine, as has been my experience, that it has been actually doing it, an actual doing the job, that you've learned a lot more about the job than you ever could have learned by just reading about it, or by hearing what somebody else had to say about it that there is that experiential aspect of knowledge. And again, theologically, there will be a significant reason for pushback for thinking that God was somehow insufficient before Jesus took on flesh to experience that. And that's we're not going to push that. But there is this idea here that what was something, uh, that God has experienced what we've experienced in Jesus. And therefore, when we are in the midst of distress midst of temptation of sin we cannot say well jesus just couldn't understand because he's god well he was fully man and he fully understands he has gone through that he understands where we are he can sympathize with where we're at and that's a very powerful message to this hebrews audience who might be feeling weary and thinking that they have gone and experienced these things and and how can how could god understand well god understands in Jesus uh, it also shows that the temptations don't force us into sin this is one of those really uh, challenging things to kind of nuance that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God so everybody is going to sin at some point but there is no sin that we have to commit there is no circumstance where like all right here this transgression could not be avoided the idea is that at the same time we're all gonna fall prey to temptation at some point but, as Jesus shows us, you can be tempted in, in various aspects and yet not sin. And we need to be careful about absolutizing the point here. Um, did Jesus experience the particular temptations and challenges that women endure, that men may not endure to the same degree? Obviously not. Uh, did Could Jesus ever be tempted to commit uh, adultery in the strictest sense? Um, since He was never married but it was, its, you know, maybe he went through some kind of sexual temptation uh, that is some kind of lust or something. We don't know. Uh, to start getting into the weeds about individual sins and, and well, Jesus couldn't identify with this particular sin because he never reached old age or any kind of number of things is to, to kind of really uh, miss the point of the Hebrews author. Uh, the point is that he has gone through the experience of humanity. He has suffered with humanity he has gone through the humiliation and the degradation the suffering that humanity goes through and therefore we can have full confidence that when we pray when we speak when we feel alone that jesus can understand because jesus has done, been there and done that and that's why we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and find grace uh to help in time of need because jesus has gone before us Jesus is advocating for us. And that's really part of the reason why he's saying here why uh, it's so important that Jesus has passed through to the heavens. You know, Why isn't Jesus right in front of us right now? Uh, wouldn't it be a lot easier for us to say, hey, Jesus is in Jerusalem, let's go ask him about this. Or, you know, we can tell that Jesus is Lord and King because 2,000 years later he's still there in Jerusalem. Um, but that's missing the point that part of this plan of God was not just that he would live and die and be raised in power, but that he would ascend, that he would reign over the heavens and the earth. And to do that, he has to be in heaven and he has to be on the throne of God. But that also means that he is at the right hand of God interceding for us in Romans 8. And so that's a very powerful thing. And that's why we have the boldness to pray to him. And we should have that boldness. We shouldn't you know, shrink back. Uh, I think one of the things that we've we've almost taken for granted our direct access to God uh, through Jesus. Uh, And and that's where this whole passage here is very important for us uh, to consider. Uh, Because we can look at at least the beginning of chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. This is beginning section. And really, uh, the whole section, chapter 5, 1 through 10, um, is a full section. Uh, and you have a, a chiastic pattern. Uh, we see here, uh, talking about the nature of the high priest on earth, Uh, we're going to see all of the things mentioned here are now going to be addressed in in reverse order uh, in in verses 5 through 10 as it relates to Jesus. So this part is about high priests chosen by men, uh, chosen from among men. So this is talking about human high priests. We're supposed to think here of Aaron. And what does the Hebrew author want us to see about the nature of a high priesthood? Well, a high priest comes from... Uh, Humans to offer gifts and sacrifices. So many times we get so stuck on the sin offering. And the sin offering is there, it's important, it's a major part of the high priest's job. But when you look at Leviticus, there's a lot more going on than just sin offering. You've got guilt offerings, you've got uh, grain offerings, you've got the uh, thank offerings. Uh, you have the first fruits offering, and of course you've got the peace offering, where you just come to bring uh, a sacrifice to God, to, make, to demonstrate the peace, the shalom in your relationship with him, and uh, you eat it. But in all these things, the high priest is there, and the high priest is the one who advocates for the people before God. He stands there between God and the people. He is appointed of men, he doesn't select that honor for himself. He is uh, called to do it and he can deal with the people because he's also human. you know He has been set aside for holiness right He's He's not supposed to touch uh, dead things or unclean things. He's supposed to maintain uh, distance from, from from any form of impurity because he communicates holiness because of who he is and the holiness imbued in his role. And yet, he is weak himself. He has to offer sins for, I mean, forgive uh, an offering for sin for himself before he can offer uh, the sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. And so, uh, he's got a very important role, which also means that the people never have direct access to God. They're expecting this kind of mediatorial function. And so they're always one step removed. And so it's very hard for us to get into that mentality where we feel like we're always one step removed from the standing before God because we're so used to just having that standing before God. But the Hebrew's audience, even if they are coming out of the Gentiles, I mean, if they're Jewish Christians, and certainly based upon their experience in uh under the law. They were used to having this mediation and used to being at this point of remove and this distance. But even if they had come among the Gentiles, uh, Gentiles were in the same position where all of these pagan temples had priests and there was a a mediation level there. So this was just kind of the common framework of the time that you've got this mediatorial position, which means that you are a step removed from the divinity. Um, So there's that distance there that the Hebrews author is trying to show we now have this high priest who is uh, ideal and we can see in in our next podcast when we get into verses 5 through 10 and and perhaps following how that that high priest is Jesus because he is, of course, both God and man. He is the ultimate mediator as Paul will put it in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5 because he is the human Christ Jesus who is yet God and the Son of God. And so that's how that puts him in that perfect position to mediate between God and between man and the means by which we get this access. And so when uh, the end of chapter... I mean, this is really hard to break up at all. In chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5 and verse 10, uh, it's very tightly, coherently argued where he's actually kind of front-loaded his, his conclusion. Uh, the conclusion of this matter is really verses 4, uh, 14 through uh, 16. We have this high priest... He sympathizes with us. Uh, We can therefore draw uh, to the throne of grace with confidence. And then he explains the nature of the high priest according to man. He's going to explain the high priest according to what we see in Jesus, which really reinforces that conclusion. Uh, That's why we can stand before God. We have this access now because Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Jesus has paid the price. Jesus can sympathize with us, and that is to bring, give us confidence that we can stand before God. God wants to hear our prayers. God wants to strengthen and sustain us. God wants to build that relationship with us. There's always that tension between the recognition that God is holy and hallowed be his name, and he is, he is terrifying, and yet that we are called to come in to maintain much greater relational unity with him. And the Hebrews author really wants his audience to, to draw near, to to, to come and to, to get the benefits that come with that because he can see they're pulling away, and that pulling away is very dangerous for them. All right, so we're right in the middle of the section. Uh, we'll again address it next time, if the Lord wills, and may the Lord bless and keep you until that time. <laughs>